Well, Morris Thurston, let's um, let's turn a bit and talk about Joseph Smith and some of his legal battles uh, during the Nauvoo years. Um, okay. But I think, but I think it might make sense for our listeners to sort of give just a high level bit of context because the truth is, there are a lot of Mormons who just don't know basic Mormon history. Right. So I'm going to give my best little narrative of what leads to Nauvoo, and then you can either correct me or add or just sort of uh, t- take off from there historically. But, right. But as I understand it, um, you know, uh, the church moved from New York into the Kirtland and uh, Missouri areas. And um, while Missouri showed a lot of promise and was supposed to be, you know, Zion and the place that we would all gather, um, uh, things in Missouri didn't go so well. And there were lots of reasons for that. Uh, but over time, uh, we began um, being persecuted by the saints of Missouri. And at some point, the governor of Missouri, Lilburn Boggs, um, actually apparently issued an extermination order, giving people the license or the authority to actually kill Mormons, if they so uh, felt it necessary. Um, They were driven out of their homes, uh, driven further west, as I understand it. Um, Several standoffs happened, and um, Joseph was incarcerated at some point. And eventually, this led to a lot of tension on both sides. And and so while Missourians were busy persecuting and running us out and and trying to, to kill us, we were trying to defend ourselves, and this is where we get into that sort of cloudy period where this group called the Danites um, sort of emerged, which was, as I understand it, uh, sort of a vigilante thing. I, I don't know if there's any direct connections to Joseph Smith's uh, knowledge or approval of it, but it was definitely this group that said, we're not going to take this anymore, and if we have to take justice into our own hands, we're going to protect the church um, you know, by, by any means necessary. Uh, and as I understand it, Porter Rockwell, who becomes maybe a potential figure in the Nauvoo years, was definitely seemed to be implicated in that group of, uh, of the Danites. And so let's just sort of, as that is the context, the, the saints eventually are you know, kicked out of Missouri. They go to Illinois um, and they start creating Nauvoo um, you know, with, a, with a hope to start over. So ha- um, having given that sort of background... Correct where I messed up, uh, add whatever you want to, or begin talking about how the church sort of grew. If you want to talk the charter about the charter a bit that, William, that John C. Bennett helped us create, but take, take over from here. Well, maybe just a, a little bit more of a chronological uh, putting into place, uh, because I think the way that you told the story is a little misleading. Uh, Yes, in Missouri, they did run into tough times, and particularly, to put a date on it, 1838 is when Joseph and Sidney arrived on the scene uh, from Kirtland. And about that same time, a number of longtime church members, people in leading positions, were uh, basically disfellowshipped or or excommunicated from the church. And this included uh, Oliver Cowdery, Uh, David Whitmer, John Whitmer, and W.W. Phelps, who was the editor of the paper there. So these were key individuals. uh, This is when the Danites began, and the Danites were not, at that point, uh, as I understand it, their goal was to kind of purge the church of the dissenters. It wasn't so much the Missourians that they were concerned with at that time, but these dissenters, and, and they were, the dissenters were essentially told in no uncertain terms, just get out of here. 
leave. Uh, we don't want you part of us. Uh, but that obviously didn't sit well with the people in the surrounding area either. Uh, then, uh, this all kind of happened within this 1838 time frame. Uh, there starts being raiding parties back and forth. The Missourians are raiding the Mormons. The Mormons are raiding some of the Missourians. And, uh, but Joseph's own involvement in this, uh, he does not seem to have been a central figure. Uh, now, he was there. He was president of the church. Uh, certainly, he must have known much of what was going on. But the really outrageous speeches were being given by Sidney Rigdon. Uh, and Joseph was never uh, part of the militia. He was not a military man at that time. Later in Nauvoo, he became some kind of a lieutenant general, but at that time, he was not part of that. The Danites were, it seems that their founder was this Samson Avard, and uh, Rockwell seems to have been on most people's list as being a part of them. Uh, when Boggs issued his extermination order, was when things had gotten totally out of hand uh, on both sides. And the order didn't really give people license to go kill Mormons. It really said uh, that the Mormons either have to leave the state or they will be exterminated. It was kind of a threat. And within days of that extermination order, Joseph Smith and the Brethren surrendered at Far West. And so there was never a need at that point to go out and murder people. Uh, the Hans Mill Massacre... So was anyone actually murdered under that extermination order? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Now, the Hans Mill Massacre occurred the day after or two days after the extermination order. But my understanding of the best scholarship is that the participants in the Hans Mill Massacre didn't even know about the extermination order when, it, when they did that. Interesting. But there were certainly people killed at Hans Mill. Uh, Joseph surrendered at Far West and, as you said, was thrown into jail. Uh, but before that, there was a rather extensive set of uh, hearings, an inquest, at which many people testified. Uh, the Mormons say that they were browbeaten, that their own witnesses were scared away because if a witness came in and testified favorably to the Mormons, he was immediately arrested and thrown into jail with the rest of them. Uh, of course, the Missourians claim that the thing was all done on the up and up. Samson Avard uh, turned state's witness, as we would say today. Uh, he essentially renounced the church and put a lot of testimony on the record that was very unfavorable to the church, but a lot of people feel that he did, a lot of his testimony was simply to save his own skin because he was clearly the uh, instigator of the Danites and and the guy at the leadership in all of this, uh, he avoided jail by doing that. But Joseph, Sidney, Hiram, and others, uh, Parley P. Pratt, were jailed. Uh, the charge against Joseph was treason. Uh, others were, Parley P. Pratt, the charge was murder. Uh, but the murder was not one that he is alleged to have pulled the trigger on, but simply there was a battle involving, the Battle of Crooked River involving Mormon troops and uh, Missourians, at which a, a Missourian was killed, and therefore any participant in that, and particularly a leader, uh, would be claimed to be guilty of murder. Joseph's uh, alleged crime of treason was treason against the state of Missouri, which is kind of an unusual thing. We ask, how can you 
have treason against a state. We think of treason against a country. Uh, but I think that the Missourians, really the view there was that treason was an offense for which bail could not be posted. And uh, at least some, there have been some theories that part of what was going on here was holding Joseph Smith hostage while the Mormons exited the state. And uh, by April of 1839, he was taken into custody in, in prison in December 1, 1838. By April of 1839, the Mormons had vacated. They left during the winter, crossed the Mississippi, and were gone, almost uh, you know, everyone who was an active Mormon. And which jail did Joseph go to? Well, he first went to uh, 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 Richmond Jail, and then he ended up in Liberty Jail, and that's Liberty jail. where he spent most of the time. Okay, and so basically it was, you can have your profit back as soon as you're all gone. That's that, what that's a lot the, of people have speculated. Now, okay. that was never said, and uh, Joseph, finally in April, Joseph was taken from Liberty Jail, which is down near Independence, uh, up to Gallatin uh, in uh, Missouri, which is where the some of the Mormon militants had done some of their raiding, and it's the county seat of Davies County, there to be tried for his treasonous crimes. However, when they got to Gallatin, uh, it turns out that the judge in Gallatin was one of the prosecuting attorneys back at this inquest uh, that was heard right when Joseph was uh, was surrendered. And obviously that's a, a conflict of interest, and so Joseph's attorneys, and by the way, Joseph always had uh, the best attorneys. In this case, one of his attorneys was Alexander Donovan, a member of the state legislature of, of Missouri. His attorneys got a change of venue to Boone County, and so uh, in April they took off for Boone County for the new trial. And that is where, sort of halfway along the way in Cheriton County, uh, Joseph escaped uh, from his and the others from their prisoners and went or their uh, guards and went back to Illinois. So he escaped. Like the, what I had always read is they just sort of kind of quietly let him go. Did, did they actually? That that's actually a big debate among historians uh, whether you use the word escape or let them go. The version that Hiram Smith told was that the uh, uh, guards uh, basically let it be known that they uh, were going to get drunk that night, and uh, if uh, the saints wanted to take off, uh, they could, the, the, the prisoners. They would look the other way. Sheriff Morgan, who was in charge of the group, later it took a lot of heat for letting them escape. And he denied, of course, that he did that. Uh, but there's also evidence that they escaped with a horse that Joseph Smith had bought en route by a promissory note to one of the guards. And, you know, why would a guard sell Joseph Smith the horse? I mean, you could certainly, one interpretation is, okay, uh, here you go, take off. And one of the things we found in connection with this legal paper that's a lot of fun is that we have found where this guard came back to Nauvoo several years later and collected on the promissory note.
So that lends some credence to the fact that this maybe wasn't completely an escape. Okay, so now uh, take us into Nauvoo and um, give us a little background, whatever background you want to, before we start talking about the cases. Well, I think that really gets us right into the case because uh, nothing happens to Joseph after he escapes. Now, if, again, if you, th- if, if you really think that Missouri wanted to keep Joseph, you would have thought they would have immediately set about trying to extradite A manhunt, a big manhunt. A manhunt, or at the very least, gone through legal procedures in Missouri, because it was very obvious he was in Illinois, right across the river, and that he was setting up this major city of Nauvoo. Uh, There are legal procedures where they can demand that a fugitive from justice come back and stand trial for his alleged crimes. And he fled in in 1839, is that right? He fled on, yes, 1839, April. Okay, April. April 6th, probably. No, I'm just kidding. No. 1830, I'm kidding. 1839. And... In August of 1840, so we're talking over a year later, the Boone County prosecutor filed a document that we have found called a Nol Prosecchi. And it is a uh, document that says that I no longer intend to prosecute this case. So uh, more than a year later, as far as Boone County is concerned, which is where he was to stand trial, that's where they were headed, the case is dead. Drop charges, basically. They drop the charges. Yeah, except that it's not with prejudice. In other words, you can reinstitute these charges, but it indicated that he was not interested in going forward. The very next month, September of 1840, the governor of Missouri, Thomas Reynolds, initiated the extradition proceedings against Joseph by sending a requisition to the governor of Illinois, Thomas Carlin. And so for the longest time, I scratched my head on why. I mean, it's now well over a year later. Boone County prosecutor doesn't want to go forward with it. All of a sudden, we've got these documents appearing uh, saying, we want Joseph back to stand trial. Again, this is 1840 now. 1840. And uh, And Boggs is governor? or no longer? Boggs is no longer governor. Reynolds is governor. Reynolds is governor. And... uh, then I started reading newspaper articles uh, for, throughout the area and found that just about this same time, a month or so before, there was an incident involving Missourians and Illinoisans. And what happened was that a bunch of what sometimes are referred to in the paper, newspaper articles as ruffians uh, from uh, Missouri, from Tully, Missouri, uh, slipped across the river and kidnapped three or four Mormons uh, in a, near a Mormon community of Lima, Illinois, and took them back across the river. The claim was that the Mormons had been stealing from the Missourians, taking it over there and caching it. Now, whether they actually did that or not, I don't know, and I don't know that anyone knows. But this raised quite a furor in Illinois, uh, because when the Mormons first arrived, uh, the Illinois papers were highly, highly complimentary of them. Uh, but uh, so, so still, at, the, at 1840, they were very much on the Mormon side. And they said, this is outrageous. How could Missouri come and kidnap these people? We demand that our governor extradite these criminals from Missouri back to Illinois, where the crime was committed, and stand trial. And the governor did. He, he brought up extradition papers and 
they were to come back. Well, I think what happened is that the governor of Missouri gets these extradition papers and says, oh ho, you're going to take some of our citizens and try them for alleged crimes against these Mormon thieves. By golly, we've got someone worse than a thief there in Illinois, and we're going to get him back. Hmm. And so that, I think, was the impetus for uh, the request to get Joseph and and to Sidney Rigdon to kind of interstate rivalry. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Um, by the way, the, the papers said uh, this is what was said in the Quincy Whig. Kind of interesting. Immediately upon the return of Governor Carlin's messenger, two envoys made their appearance in our city from Governor Boggs of Missouri. Now, by the way, Governor Boggs, was, it was really Governor Reynolds, so the newspaper had it wrong. Commissioned with powers to demand of Governor Carlin, Joseph Smith Jr. and Sidney Rigdon, two citizens of this state, as runaway criminals from Missouri. Governor Carlin and the two Missouri agents held a conference on Sunday last, Yes, on the Sabbath day. And the result was, as far as we learn, that Governor Carlin is to give up Messrs. Smith and Rigdon to the Missouri authorities. Most certainly, Smith and Rigdon should not be given up. The governor well knows the prejudices existing in Missouri against the society of which they are prominent members. Should they be given up, the governor of Missouri should protect them from a mob they could ne- and, and if the governor of Missouri should protect them from the mob, they could never expect justice in a trial under the laws of Missouri. So this is a, a non-Mormon newspaper from Quincy that is making these statements. So it's not just the Mormons who claim these things. It was pretty well commonly believed at this time that Joseph and Sidney would never get justice in Missouri. That makes sense. So... Right away, they, they tried to serve the, the warrant to get Joseph and Sidney back, but as we'll learn as we go along, it's not easy to serve a warrant on Joseph Smith in Nauvoo, and, and he basically avoided service at that time. And again, the matter seemed to just drop. You know, it, it seemed like no one in Illinois was that anxious for this to happen, and maybe no one in Missouri was that anxious for it either. Uh, and then we get this business happening with what I call the first extradition request uh, where it gets served. And that's what we're talking about now is the first request. And it was served in June, June 4th, 1841. So we're now talking the next year. Joseph has just been visiting Governor Carlin in Governor Carlin's uh, house in Quincy. Uh, And nothing at all is said about this. And yet, just a couple of hours later, he's cornered by the sheriff of uh, Adams County, where Quincy's located, and arrested in, and said that, you know, you're now going back to Missouri. So the thought is that Governor Carlin, all around, all the time, knew and uh, that he tipped off the, the authorities to Joseph's whereabouts, and, and so now he's ready to go. This kind of corresponds with the period of time where uh, the Mormon stock starts to go down among certain newspapers at least. And when I was here in the last session, we talked about the brouhaha with uh, Thomas Sharp. This is happening at the same time where Thomas Sharp, uh, the editor of the Warsaw Signal, uh, writes an article that's kind of negative toward the saints, but not all that negative. And uh, Joseph Smith replies with a very 
very out there kind of reply, uh, calling it a tissue of lies and a filthy rag, essentially. Let me just jump in and ask you just a little bit more background. The, the narrative that I remember reading about, which again is going to be sketchy, is that you know when 10,000 or 15,000 um, citizens sort of plop down in a state, there can be some pretty serious political consequences or ramifications for that. And as I understand it, the state of Illinois politically was so evenly divided between two parties. I don't know if it's the Whigs or Democratic Republicans or what they were, but divided between two parties such that a ten to 15,000 person voting block can actually mean the difference between who becomes governor um, and other, you know, who becomes senator and other very important things. So I've heard that as a main, a primary impetus behind the degree of favor with which the LDS people were received. Um, so that led to John C. Bennett going to the Illinois State Legislature and getting a charter for the city of Nauvoo, which by many historical interpretations has been viewed as a very favorable one, granting much more powers and authority to, to, to the leaders of Nauvoo than a, than a city traditionally would have been granted. And it also led, as I understand it, to both parties trying to curry favor with Joseph Smith um, and, and Joseph then working through at least a few years of promising his affections and loyalty to one side and then maybe to the other and then eventually both being frustrated with Joseph um, because neither felt like they could then rely on, on the citizens of Nauvoo or the Mormons to vote equitably. Is any of this relevant to what you're good, you know, the setting to what we'll talk about? Um, and am I, do I have it wrong in any fundamental points? Well, it is, it is relevant. And certainly the political, uh, the Mormons were a political pawn, no doubt about it. And Nauvoo was destined to become, uh, if not the largest city in Illinois, certainly close to Chicago is the largest. And you, whenever you have a big city like Los Angeles or Salt Lake City, they, they will have the ability to somewhat dominate uh, state politics. And the Saints didn't dominate, but they were a critical swing boat. And so uh, people were trying to curry favor. Politicians on both sides of the fence were currying favor. And the, and the Saints tended to flip-flop. And they were criticized for that. That's what Sharp was criticizing them for. Joseph's response was, why wouldn't we vote for the person who's going to uh, treat us well? Uh, so, yes, that was a, a major issue. Uh, why it was, if, if that played an, a part in his suddenly being arrested or not, I'm not sure, because Carlin, as much as anyone, would like to have, I'm sure, curried favor with Joseph. And maybe that's why Carlin didn't mention it when Joseph was there. Maybe he wanted it to look like it was just the, uh, the administrative branch, or rather the, the justice branch of, that was taking charge of all of this. Okay. Uh, anyway, so Joseph gets... Uh, gets taken just outside of Quincy. Uh, they travel back to Nauvoo, which is a day's journey, uh, with the prisoner, with, with the uh, guards, uh, the sheriff. Uh, he gets sick. He spends Sunday, that was Saturday, they spend Sunday in Nauvoo. Joseph nurses him until he's healthy enough to travel again. And where they're going is Monmouth, Illinois. And the reason they're going there is that the circuit court, the circuit judge for that area, 
was Stephen A. Douglas, who becomes a very critical figure in American politics later on when he runs against Abraham Lincoln for president. Lincoln-Douglas debates. Exactly. And Stephen A. Douglas at this time was a circuit judge. Circuit judges were justices of the Supreme Court that would ride the circuit and to the various uh, county seats throughout Illinois and hold court. And Douglas was going to hold court in Monmouth. And when the, the judge came to town, this was like the circus coming to town because uh, everybody was excited about what would happen. Their friends would be there, there would be lawsuits going back and forth, and it was great entertainment. But for Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet, to be dragged into court was even greater entertainment. This was something these folks in Monmouth hadn't seen uh, at all. And so as Joseph arrives uh, on Monday, people are there to see him come. They want to see a prophet, see him in chains, as he puts it. Whether he was literally in chains, I don't know. Uh, but as, at the same time, Joseph was always accompanied by quite a large contingent of his own followers, bodyguards, uh, uh, members of, of the leadership, the hierarchy, or whatever. So we're talking about maybe four or five uh, uh, people that are keeping guard over him, and then uh, 15 or 20 of his own uh, people who are with them, and they're all arriving in Monmouth. Uh, there's, a, there's a hearing before Judge Douglas, and you know one funny incident that I'll just relate, there there were five lawyers that Joseph hired for this. Again, as I say, he tended to go for the best. And the best lawyer in Illinois at the time was Orville Browning. Uh, Browning was uh, the man who later was one of the key organizers of the Republican Party and was very instrumental in getting the presidency for Abraham Lincoln and went on to serve in cabinet-level positions in Washington. So he, he's an outstanding guy. At this time, he's in his 30s, like Joseph is. Very pious, very uh, uh, down, straight-down-the-line guy. And he led the team of five lawyers that Joseph hired. And there was a team of five lawyers for the state, including one young lawyer from Missouri. And the Illinois people had a nickname for Missourians. They called them pukes. And this incident that happened, uh, the, the Missouri lawyer apparently got up and started his argument and been drinking a bit and chewing tobacco and suddenly felt sick. And I, I know as a young lawyer, you often feel sick in big surroundings where the courtroom's packed, as this one was. He runs out of the room, runs down the stair, and they can hear him retching down the stairs. And everybody breaks up in laughter because here we have a Missouri puke who's puking on the stairs. Uh, but that's just a funny incident that happens. Uh, Browning makes an impassioned plea before the judge and says, uh, uh, I'll just read you a sentence or two of it. He talks about the persecution of the Mormons. Great God, have I not seen it? Yes, my eyes have beheld the blood-stained traces of innocent women and children in the drear winter who traveled hundreds of miles barefoot through frost and snow to seek a refuge from their savage pursuers. T'was a scene of horror sufficient to enlist sympathy from an adamantine heart. And he goes on in this vein. Of course, the issue before the judge, this is on habeas corpus. And I should explain a little bit about habeas corpus because it comes very critical as we go on. The, the accepted role of habeas corpus 
is to test the validity of the arrest warrant. In other words, is it issued by proper authority and was it properly served? And that's it. You don't go into the reasons behind it. In other words, this was not a trial of whether or not Joseph was guilty of treason in Missouri. This was a trial about whether the requisition was proper and whether it was properly served. And uh, all this stuff that Browning was saying was essentially irrelevant to that point. But it made good copy, and according to at least the Mormon sources, it brought many to tears. Uh, Douglas retired and came on the bench, and I think Douglas was a very political guy, as we were later to find out, and he didn't want to have the Mormons uh, think ill of him, and he came up with a very ingenious ruling. What he ruled was that, in fact, when Joseph was served with process, it was invalid because the original warrant had been issued way back the year before. They had gone out to try to serve him. They couldn't find him, and they had returned the warrant to the, the, uh, the governor as being unsigned. At that point, Douglas said, it was void. It was null and void. And if Missouri wanted to extradite Joseph again, they had to issue a new requisition and a new warrant had to be issued. And so Joseph was free to go. Hmm. And uh, do we know if the governor of Illinois was okay with this? Or did he have some backwoods agreement, you know, with the governor of Missouri? And so there was continuing animosity, you know? I don't think there was particular agreement between the two governors, but whether the governor, whether Carlin thought this was a good uh, thing or not, uh, I'm not sure. It certainly got favor for Douglas among the Mormons. Uh, Joseph and his uh, group were just enthusiastic about this, even though it was on a technicality and not on the merits. Uh, They had a big dinner, and apparently he treated 120 people or no, 50, 50 people to dinner, 60 people to dinner, I think it was. Who did? Joseph. Including? Probably including... Douglas? Uh, I, did, I don't know if Douglas was invited. It wouldn't surprise me if he was, but uh, certainly as lawyers and all the people that had come to Nauvoo that were members of the church and other dignitaries... Joseph threw a big party. Big party, and he was a little bit peeved at the fact that it came to $120, which is tidy sum of money in those days. The Who was peeped? Joseph. Oh, he said that in his diary. That party that I threw. Yeah, in my his diary. People, was, my, my people spent too yeah, much money. Yeah, well, reading between the lines, it seems like maybe and, and he what, thought the bill was excessive. Let's and what were Douglas's aspirations? You know, did, did he have political aspirations that he was maybe trying to cover a bit? Oh, I'm sure he did. What I were mean, they? Did he want to become... Well, president or governor? Or? I don't. I don't know. I have not read a biography okay. of Douglas, okay. but uh, he he was uh, he very soon rose to being a senator and and then engaging in these uh, in these debates. And, a U.S. senator. Yeah, I believe so. And so he would have had to have gotten voted by the state, right? Right. Okay. Right. All right. Yeah. No, he was governor ford as a matter of fact now that you're now this is kind of coming back to me i I have a feeling they were on different sides of the political spectrum because in his history of illinois ford kind of excoriates uh douglas as being just a political animal and that the reason for his ruling as he did was all due to politics and was ford and was it carlin 
Carlin was governor at the time. Ford became governor Were after they both Carlin. of the same party, or do you know? Or? I believe so. Yeah, no, you're asking yeah. me things that sorry. I, sh- I should be Too better at, but I'm not. No, it's good. Um, okay, so Joseph has a big party. He gets uh, let off the hook. Yes. And uh, so things seem fine now. And, and this uh, is 1840. 1841 we're talking still. about. Okay. This is June of 1841. Okay. The next thing that is relevant from my standpoint, the, the extraditions, happens on May 6th of 1842, almost a year later, when uh, Governor Lilburn Boggs, ex-Governor Lilburn Boggs of Missouri, is sitting in his home in Independence, a nice, cozy family room, by a fire, reading a newspaper in the evening. He's got uh, his daughter, who's seven or eight years old, there in the room, and she's tending a little infant baby. He's got a large family, and his wife and other members of the family, we think, were, at least according to the story that his son later wrote, we're in uh, cleaning up the evening meal when suddenly there's a crash and Bog slumps over, blood gushing, and he's been shot. Okay. Uh, from someone outside the home. Uh, through a window. I through a window. And uh, screams bring neighbors, eventually doctors. It looks like he's dead for sure. Uh, two balls have entered his head. Uh, so one it's a rifle. In his neck. It's not a rifle, it's a, it's a pistol, but it's uh, one that has the different balls. Okay, uh, okay. Uh, it's a German pistol is what it is, uh, because the shooter leaves the pistol outside the window, uh, whether in his haste to get away or what, we don't know. Really? Uh, so the pistol is found, and, and had we the fingerprint capabilities that we have today, that might have told a story right there. Uh, now, so they, they labor over him, he's, he's in a coma, uh, but despite the fact that everybody believes he's going to die, and in fact some newspapers in Nauvoo are later printing that he has died, he does not die, and he fully recovers. Uh, initially, the suspicion goes out that uh, it could be anyone. Uh, it could be some of his political enemies. Uh, there's a guy named Tompkins who actually is a real hard suspect, but then he basically proves an alibi and he gets, gets away uh, with that. They determine he's not the one that did it. And someone, it occurs to somebody that, you know, this could be the work of the Mormons. Well, lo and behold, who should be in Missouri at that time but Warren Porter Rockwell? Uh, as you point out, someone who has been affiliated or associated at least with the Danites uh, earlier and who is fiercely loyal to Joseph. In fact, when Joseph went back to uh, to Washington to meet with uh, President Van Buren, uh, the person he took along as bodyguard, as his personal bodyguard, was Porter Rockwell. And Porter Rockwell loved the prophet. So uh, there are those who begin to suspect that maybe Rockwell was the shooter. Rockwell leaves uh, Illinois or Missouri. Real, real quick, yeah. Um, as I've learned a little bit about Mountain Meadows massacre, one of the one of the issues that sort of is irrefutable but not conclusive is that you know that a lot of the rhetoric coming from Brigham Young and a lot of the other high church leaders, at least in part, contributed to the environment that, that probably led to the massacre. 
So do we know anything about writings or speeches given or even personal conversations where Joseph or other church leaders expressed hatred towards Boggs, that he was going to die, that he should die, that blood atonement should happen towards him or anything to that effect? You know, is there any, is there anything regarding the environment or, or rhetoric used about him or any personal conversations that would, that would potentially tie, you know, uh, you know, uh, these accusations? Well, it wouldn't surprise me, and in fact, I'm, I'm almost sure that there was lots of rhetoric against Governor Boggs. I mean, Governor Boggs... By was, Joseph and... Tom by Church Joseph, Church. by other church leaders, uh, by Hiram, by Sidney. I mean, Boggs was the guy that issued the extermination order. He's the guy that threw them in prison for five or six months and uh, who wanted Joseph back. I mean, Boggs, it was, Boggs had a lot to do with, in the Mormons' minds with the problems they went through. And we have at least the secondary sources. There was a postmaster in uh, just across the river from Nauvoo in Montrose, Illinois, who was a very anti-Mormon, uh, very outspoken anti-Mormon, who wrote a letter to Governor Reynolds saying that he had heard uh, the Mormons uh, talk about speeches that Joseph gave, uh, prophesying, for example, that Boggs would die a violent death. Uh, and so, yes, uh, I think there probably was rhetoric. Uh, I'm not willing to put complete credence in, in this postmaster because a lot of what he writes has a lot of vitriol attached and it tends to be secondhand evidence. So I'm not going to say that that's necessarily true. But I, in my own heart, I can't help but feel that clearly uh, no Mormon would have been all that upset if, if Boggs had met a violent death. That's a long way from saying that Joseph Smith uh, ordered Porter Rockwell to go down and shoot Governor Boggs. Rockwell went down to Missouri, and he'd been there for several months. He went down there because his wife's parents lived there, and she was expecting uh, their third or fourth child. And he was went he down, a polygamist? Or? Uh, this time he wasn't, okay. later. Okay. Uh, so he went down there to be with her. And at least I don't think he was at this time. If he was, it was fairly new. Um, and, and so he had good reason to be there, in other words. And, and he was there several months prior to the actual shooting. Yeah. Uh, and, and there'd be good reason to leave right after the shooting if you were a Mormon and affiliated with the Danites. I mean, so he did come back to Illinois right after the shooting. Yes. Whether that was because he was scared that he would be blamed or he actually wanted to avoid... Uh, the law is is up to question. Right, exactly. Okay. Uh, and uh, so he gets back there, and pretty soon, this, is, this almost corresponds exactly with when John C. Bennett leaves the church, is kicked and out. And tell us just a tiny bit about him. I know this is a lot of detail you weren't planning on, but he's a pretty important figure that Mormons know pretty much nothing about. Well, he is important. Uh, he was a very politically connected man, uh, he had been a physician at times. Uh, he was instrumental in getting the Nauvoo Charter, which, as you pointed out, was a very liberal charter. By the way, there were a number of cities in Illinois, however, who received charters almost as liberal. But it was really the, it was the interpretation that the Mormons put on this charter and the laws promulgated under the charter it kind of pushed it to the level where people really right, felt right. that the Mormons were taking advantage Bennett of it. Ben was from Ohio, right? 
Uh, yeah, he had been at various places. And had and his, he left a wife he there? He left a wife there, and he didn't really tell anybody that he had a wife there. Uh, and when he got to Nauvoo, he started preaching this spiritual wifery theory, which sounds a lot like polygamy, but I've, the, the big difference is that it wasn't authorized. Real quick, because he was so instrumental in helping the saints establish Nauvoo, as I understand it, Joseph made him co-president of the church. Yes, he, he rose and he's to in the Doctrine and Covenants where it says John C. Bennett will be co-president of the church. Or well, something he rose like. to a very high level. High level. Certainly, uh, I almost think of him in having the same position as Hiram Smith later had. Right. Uh, and yes, so, so you're talking about a man who had a meteoric rise in the church and who Joseph obviously trusted to a great degree, and Joseph's judgment and character wasn't always the greatest, and this was probably the primary example. One last question. Yeah. Some claim that he was an abortionist. Is there any, in other words, people who want to say that Joseph was having relations with the wives that were secret, that, that John C. Bennett would sweep in and actually perform the abortions in case someone got pregnant. It seems really tabloidish. Is there any evidence that that, that that the credibility that you're aware of? None that I'm aware of. Okay, I think. Have you heard that? I, you know, there was so much charge and countercharge going on at that time. I mean, you, you can read people who were against the church will say almost anything. Yeah, right. Okay. And people, frankly, who were in Nauvoo would say almost anything. Okay, and it's very, very difficult for a historian later on to determine what was true or not. You have to go back. What were people saying close to the event? Because that's likely to be more true than things said 40 or 50 years later. And then you have to look at the motivation for saying it. And I'm sure that, and I don't even know the source for this rumor about abortions, but I'm sure if you looked at that, you would find that it's a very third or fourth hand uh, mm-hmm. and that there were, there were uh, I mean, I don't think John C. Bennett ever said he did that. And certainly if he hated the church as much as he obviously did, he would have said if he had committed abortions. But clearly he 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 would have been privy to Joseph's, uh, probably some of his deepest secrets. Clearly Joseph would have revealed to him the law of uh, eternal marriage or polygamy or whatever. And so he would have known that, that, that from from the prophet's perspective, Polygamy was okay if sanctioned appropriately. Yes. And then when you talk about spiritual wifery, you're saying that that was him trying to do his own version of it um, in addition to whatever was legitimate from the prophet's eyes, right? Right. Yeah, he would find a girl that he liked and try to seduce her and say, it's all right. And my understanding, at least from the Mormon perspective, was he was saying, look, it's all right to have sex. Uh you don't even really need to undergo a formal marriage sanctioned by Joseph or the other brethren. Uh, we'll just call it spiritual wifery. Play marriage, I guess. I don't know. And, and we don't, there's no evidence that Joseph knew he was doing this? Or? Well, he found out about it, and uh, that's why that was one of the causes of the rift. That's why he basically excommunicated uh, Bennett. And this outraged, Over that? Over that? Yes. Okay. Uh, and this outraged Bennett. And uh, he determined to make the church pay. And he was a talented enough guy that he could do that. He was a good writer. He went to newspapers with stories. 
and just a whole series of newspaper articles were published by anti-Mormon newspapers uh, by Bennett, and eventually he wrote a book. Did he stay in, in Nauvoo when he was writing these, or did he, no, he moved away? he moved away, but he okay. was in Illinois for a while, and he went down to Missouri and talked to the Missouri papers and, and uh, everything like that. Okay. Uh, he actually, one of the things he wrote is probably the clearest, um, well, let me just say this. When, because we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, when, when uh, Rockwell gets back to Illinois, we don't know if it's Rockwell or someone else, but my suspicion is that, you know, news travels only as fast as a horse in those days. And I imagine Rockwell got back there as quick as he could after the shooting. And somehow the folks in Illinois were under the impression that Boggs was dead. And there was a editorial printed in the Nauvoo Wasp, which was edited by William Smith, the prophet's brother, signed by someone named Alpha, which was probably William Smith, but it could have been someone else. And it said, Boggs is undoubtedly killed, according to report. But who did the noble deed remains to be found out. Noble deed? (laughs) So that tells you a little bit about the rhetoric that at least... Now, William was a bit of a loose cannon, uh, but... William Smith was also a re- representative of the state legislature from Nauvoo, so um, that didn't sound too good. However, uh, Joseph wrote a letter to the Quincy uh, Whig, I believe it was, uh, in which he said, Boggs died not through my instrumentality. My hands are clear, my, my hands are clear and my heart is pure. Actually, I think that's clean. My hands are clean and my heart is pure from the blood of all men. I'm tired of the misrepresentation, calumny, and detraction heaped upon me by wicked men. So Joseph flat out denied that he had anything to do with it. Uh, On the other hand, in uh, like within a couple of weeks after this, John C. Bennett is writing in the Sangamo Journal Uh, Quote, in 1841, Joe Smith prophesied in a public congregation in Nauvoo that Lilburn W. Boggs should die by violent hands within one year. Prior to the attempted assassination of Governor Boggs, Mr. O.P. Rockwell left Nauvoo for parts unknown. And I've got ellipses in here as I'm reading, so this doesn't come straight, but I've taken the key parts. I asked Smith where Rockwell had gone. Gone, said he, gone to fulfill prophecy. Now that's Bennett's version. So, so, ben, so Bennett, on the one hand, had access to these conversations, to the inner circles. On the other hand, he was excommunicated and had motive for misrepresenting. Exactly. Uh, and you, you probably don't have an opinion either way, or, or do you have the opinion that he's just a liar? Well... I don't have an opinion either way about whether or not Rockwell shot Boggs. Uh, You know, I think there's just too much on either side. It'd just be pure speculation. I do have an opinion that there was never enough evidence to convict Rockwell, as we shall later see. Legally? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. And that there is no legitimately, you know, unimpeachable historical evidence that would suggest that he did it. I mean, why, how can I possibly 
convict Rockwell sitting here 150, 60, 70 years later, I would be speculating. And so would anyone else who claims that Rockwell was the shooter. As to whether Joseph ordered him to do it, uh, my faith is strong enough in Joseph that I absolutely believe Joseph did not. Okay. Uh, then there's the kind of middle ground. Did Joseph make some rhetoric, make some prophecy? We, we know from reading the Joseph Smith papers that Joseph was making little prophecies on almost a daily basis. Kind of like you and I would say, you know, I, I prophesy that the uh, Patriots are going to win the game next Sunday. Uh, we, we'd say, we, I'll bet you they'll win the game. Well, Joseph, being a prophet, tended to speak in terms of prophecy, you know. And so we'll find out later in one of these things that he prophesied that he would not be sent back to Missouri. Well, he did that when his lawyers and everybody else told him, you have an absolutely ironclad case, you're not going to be sent back to Missouri. So was it a great, great prophecy? It was probably, in my mind, he was just kind of talking as a prophet. And so did he ever prophesy that Boggs might die a violent death? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But I don't think that he sent Rockwell. But that's just my faith as a Mormon who believes. Gotcha. Um, so, where are we? Uh, well, we're, we're now, what happens? Boggs, when he finally wakes up and, and figures things out, I think he becomes convinced that the Mormons were involved. So he, he swears out an affidavit saying that it's his opinion that Joseph Smith was involved as an accessory before the fact in attempted murder and that Rockwell was the guy that attempted to shoot him. This affidavit is then given to Governor Reynolds of Missouri, who issues a requisition to Governor Carlin of Illinois, and Governor Carlin uh, issues an arrest warrant and sends the sheriff up to Nauvoo to arrest Joseph. They appear and they put Joseph and Rockwell under arrest. This was apparently done all on the sly, or Joseph and Rockwell probably wouldn't have been available to be arrested. Joseph immediately goes to the Nauvoo Municipal Court and obtains a writ of habeas corpus. And the sheriff is a little puzzled by this, because this, after all, is a writ from the governor, and you're going to a municipal court of a city. So the sheriff, not knowing what to do, goes back to Quincy to Governor Carlin. says, what shall I do? Carlin says, he's outraged. Of course you go back. You arrest him, you drag him back here. They have no authority in this matter. The sheriff goes back, and as Joseph puts it in his journal, when the sheriff returned, I was away. <laughs> <laughs> and he proceeds to go into hiding uh, for the next three months or so. He's, he flits around from house to house, across the river into, into Iowa, uh, they even have a, a meeting on an island in the middle of the Mississippi River between Nauvoo and, and... So this going underground that the polygamists did in the late 1800s sort of has its origins in Joseph uh, doing the same type of thing in, in Nauvoo. Is that right? Yeah. That's, yeah. Inter that's really interesting. Uh, and, and he's put up at various houses. And, uh, but this is hard, I think, for Joseph because one thing we know about him is he, he's a very... He likes people yeah, He's a social him. guy. He's a social guy. He yeah. likes people. He likes to lead. Uh, his people are important to him, and so it's weighing on him. Uh, his wife writes a letter to him and says, 
uh, Emma writes him a letter and says, you know, I'd like to go and see if I can't get Governor Carlin to rescind this ridiculous order. You know, can I go see the governor? Because she had met him. She'd been hosted by him and his wife. And, you know, Joseph being a major political figure in the state, everybody knew Emma and Joseph. But he was fleeing the law. I mean, he was... He was fleeing the law, absolutely. So this whole obeying, honoring, sustaining the law... We believe it, but in this case, it was sort of an extraordinary circumstance where he felt like... Well, he, 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 I'm sure in Joseph's mind, this was a completely illegal... Illegitimate. Uh, ...warrant. But he didn't, feel like he, had the, he didn't feel like he had the evidence to prove Porter Rock, Rockwell innocent. No, I think what he felt was that he wouldn't get a fair trial. Right. In any sense of the word. And he was worried about... And he's what, probably right. He's probably, he's probably right, right. Yeah. and he's and in fact he's worried that he will never get to trial. That the minute they take him over the line into Missouri, someone will arrange to kill him, and that would be a very easy thing to do. I mean, you know, if the if the guards could look the other way as they did when the, as we think they did when he escaped, and as, if they could look the other way as they certainly did in Carthage, uh, then they can look the other way. Like the Lee Harvey Oswald thing, right? Yeah. Where, well, I don't know if they looked the other way there. I'm not going to get into that right, conspiracy. Right. Sure, sure, sure. But, but I think Joseph had good reason to be fearful. Um, and so, uh, anyway, Emma asks about going to see Carlin to get this thing dropped. And I think it's kind of fun. I, I have brought a few little quotes with me because I, I love to see quotes that we don't normally associate with Joseph Smith. We don't usually get it in... Uh, you know, the priesthood manuals or anything. Although we're having a couple of good manuals coming up on him, so we'll have to see. Um, the newspapers, let me first say, the newspapers, particularly the Warsaw Signal, Sharp's paper, were outraged when Joseph goes into hiding. And this is what they say. No termination of the affair could be less satisfactory than the one which has taken place. If Smith had resisted, we should have had the sport of driving him and his worthy clan out of the state en masse. But as it is, we are mortified that there is no efficacy in the law to bring such a scamp to justice. So already, you know, this is kind of the theme we're getting. The, uh, the, good, uh, the good that the saints were seen as, the good people they were seen as being, uh, is that the opinion is starting to shift, and Thomas Sharp is one of the key guys behind and it. And this is 1842? This is 1841 still. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, so, anyway, back to the letter that Joseph writes back to Emma. Uh, he kind of waffles about what he's going to do, whether he's going to fight this or not. And then at one point in the letter he says, maybe we should just take off, you and me, Emma. He says, and then... Let the goods, household furniture, clothes, and store goods that can be procured be put on the boat, and let 20 or 30 of the best men that we can find be put on board to man it, and we will wend our way like larks up the Mississippi until the touring mountains and rocks shall remind us of the places of our nativity, and we will bid defiance to the world, to Carlin, Boggs, Bennett, and all their whorish whores and motley clan that follow in their wake." Holy moly. And so you kind of see Joseph almost, in my mind, it's almost like a daydream. Can I get away from all this junk, you know? Take some of my trusted friends and start over again. Just start over again. 
but in the same letter, he tells Joseph or tells Emma, uh, you know, go in. I'm not sure it's the same letter. It may not be the same letter, but in in a letter, he tells Emma, look, you can write to Carlin, and but don't go down and see him because the guy's an idiot, and I don't want you to be spending your time with an idiot. Okay. So Emma and Carlin exchange letters back and forth, two two letters each. In the first letter, Emma says. Have pity on us, the poor elderly mother of Joseph, my children. You know, you know he's not guilty of this. Uh, can't you just drop it? And Carlin writes back, and he basically is unmoved. You know, he says he's got to stand trial. So then she writes back with some legal arguments, and they're pretty good legal arguments, which we'll get to in a bit. She probably had a counselor, right? Probably, or she might have just been smart woman. And, and I mean, the real key legal argument here is that. In order for someone to be extradited uh, from one state to another, he has to be a fugitive from justice. And Joseph, everybody knew that Joseph was in Nauvoo when Governor Boggs was murdered. Therefore, he could not be a fugitive from Missouri justice. And that's the point she made. And Carlin's point was, look, if, if he thinks he has a good case, his duty is to submit himself to the law and get it tested. Yeah. Uh, so that's what was going on. Eventually, Joseph, I think, gets tired of being in exile. He starts kind of showing his face in Nauvoo. In fact, he gives some speeches in Nauvoo. And he sends a delegation to Springfield to test the waters, to find out, if I did submit myself to the law, what would happen? And so some of his trusted advisors, some of the Twelve Apostles, take off in the middle of the winter, December, early December, and they go to Springfield. And one of the reasons they go is that Governor Carlin has been replaced by Governor Thomas Ford. Ah, see if the, the new administration would be more favorable. Exactly. Okay. And Governor Ford actually says, hold on, folks. You know, you're going to spend several days here. I'm going to go talk to some of the members of the Illinois Supreme Court and find out what they think. And he comes back and he tells them, Look, and he actually writes a letter to Joseph to this effect. I've consulted with six members of the Supreme Court, and I don't feel like I can just dismiss this case. But they say that if you come here, they're confident that you have good legal rights. Yeah, right. So uh, he writes that back. And at the same time, the the United States Attorney for Illinois, uh, Butterfield, Justin Butterfield, writes to Joseph and says... I, too, believe you have a good case, and I will represent you. The U.S. Attorney for Illinois, I will represent you in your case if you come. And so with these assurances, plus one from a Mormon judge that was in Springfield, Joseph decides that that's what he will do. And so he surrenders. In the winter of 1841. December 1841. Okay. To Wilson Law, who is the leader of the Nauvoo Legion at that time, was the highest-ranking military authority and not William law not William Wilson his brother okay and uh, and they take off for Springfield and I'm skipping a lot because you know we need to get through this but they get to Springfield three-day journey middle of the winter cold they get there and uh, of course the city Springfield is far smaller even though it's the capital of Illinois it's far smaller than Nauvoo and again, it's huge news. Uh, in fact, so huge that the 
the House of Representatives was meeting. They knew that Joseph had arrived. And all of a sudden, a team of horses breaks away and runs down the street. And the, someone shouts out, the Mormon prophet is running away. And all the House of Representatives adjourns and runs to the windows to watch this horse cart run down the street. Turns out it's not. But that's how big of a figure he was. While he's there, he meets with Stephen A. Douglas. Uh, he meets with other uh, important people. And the Speaker of the House of the Illinois House of Representatives offers him Representatives Hall for uh, preaching a sermon on Sunday. He arrives like Saturday. <laughs> And Sunday is January 1st, 1842. And so the Mormons take over Representatives Hall. Orson Hyde and John Taylor preach sermons, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And then the hall is packed with people. Uh, while the Joseph Smith Papers Project tour, that's one of the places we went. And we have uh, one of our church members works there in the Historical Society and was able to get us an exclusive one hour there in Representatives Hall today. It's been restored to look just like it did in Joseph's day. The, the whole building has. Hmm. And it was quite a feeling of history as you sat there and thought of John Taylor and Orson Hyde preaching this sermon. And we only had two speakers that day uh, from the group of scholars, and I happened to be one of the lucky ones who got to speak. Uh, so I stood there at the podium that they would have stood at. And behind me was a painting of George Washington. And I was told that it's the same painting that was hanging there when Abraham Lincoln laid in state at that very spot. Wow. So it was kind of fun to be there for that history. Hmm. So anyway, when uh, the, the legal part of this involves what Butterfield decided was to bring the case in United States District Court for Illinois rather than the Illinois Supreme Court, which is in the state court system. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that. One was that Butterfield himself was U.S. attorney and therefore affiliated with the federal court system. But he believed that since, this rec since, since extradition is covered by the Constitution of the United States, that the federal court should decide questions like this. Uh, the attorney on the other side for the state was Josiah Lamborn. Now, there's some irony here, because Josiah Lamborn, who's trying to send Joseph Smith back to Missouri, he is the attorney general for Illinois. Later, when the accused murderers of Joseph Smith are tried, uh, Lamborn is the prosecuting attorney. And there, there are actually two ironies that relate to the trial of the accused murderers, just a slight digression. Lamborn here, who is opposed to Joseph and is trying to send him back to Missouri, becomes the prosecuting attorney of his murderers, or those accused of his murder. And Orville Browning, the guy that spoke so eloquently in favor of the Mormons at the first extradition, becomes the defense attorney of the accused murderers. Ah. So, a uh, little ironies going on here. Uh, there's a fun quote that I'd like to read uh, from a newspaper about... Joseph Smith in Springfield. Uh, and I just, I, I like this, and you'll see why. Smith was attended by a retinue of some 15 or 20 of as fine-looking men as my eyes ever beheld. My great astonishment is how men possessing the intellectual faculties, refinement of education, and cultivated minds that most of his bodyguard apparently do 
can be so outrageously blinded as they are by Joe Smith. As for Smith, his demeanor, as far as I could observe, was by no means censurable, and he apparently was as unconcerned as to what was passing around him as though he was a perfect stranger to the whole proceedings. Man. (laughs) But... uh, that's a testament, at a minimum, to Joseph's personality, and I think his charisma, also, yeah. his poise, and the fact that he, even in the eyes of these non-Mormons who thought he was a, an imposter, that the men around him were not fools; uh, they were not people that struck you as just country rubes. Uh, they were people that were articulate, uh, who could deliver sermons that would draw crowds, and who who were believed hmm. by many. Uh, even though some thought they were charlatans. Uh, so when, when uh, Justice uh, uh, Pope calls the case, Judge Pope calls the case of Joseph Smith, ex parte Joseph Smith, uh, there is an absolutely packed courthouse again. And it's a ruffian kind of courthouse, mostly men, uh, and the when, when he enters the courtroom, he's accompanied by a retinue of some 10 or 12 ladies. And these are ladies of high society, and they're seated on either side of the bench in special seats, kind of away from the riffraff. And uh, I believe it included uh, uh, Butterfield's wife, although I have to look that up for sure. But one of the ladies that we know was in attendance because it was later written by someone uh, not a Mormon and who was a lawyer who happened to be there at the time was Mary Todd Lincoln, the brand new wife of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, there's no indication that Abraham himself uh, ever met the prophet or there was, and, and he was not there at the time, we're, we're quite certain. In fact, we found that he was in, otherwise engaged in another case. He was a lawyer at that time. Uh, so, when Butterfield rises up, he gives a really great opening statement. I'm going to quote from a reminiscence of a lawyer uh, that was written some years after the event, but I suspect it happened pretty much this way. <clears throat> quote, Mr. Butterfield rose with dignity amidst the most profound silence. Pausing and running his eyes admiringly from the central figure of Judge Pope, along the rows of lovely women on either side of him, he said, May it please the court, I appear before you today under circumstances most novel and peculiar. I am to address the Pope, bowing to the judge, surrounded by angels, bowing still lower to the ladies, in the presence of the holy apostles, in behalf of the prophet of the Lord. Wow. And I've always thought that was a, a great, great way to open up your argument. So anyway. So was that sarcasm? I don't think it was. I think it's a lawyer representing his client. A believer or a non-believer? I don't think he believed. But lawyers, but, but, don't, but, but, but but lawyers don't have to believe in their cases. But, <laughs> but if they're presenting to, uh, to non-believers... That could jeopardize the credibility of the legal counsel itself, right? I think it was a joke, okay? But, that, but then starting a... But it was a wonderful play of words. It was a play on words because Joseph was prophet to 
many people. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, we often refer to Joseph the prophet. Even the non-Mormon papers referred to Joseph the prophet. They didn't believe he was a true prophet of God, but that's what he called himself. And you've got, you know, you've got the whole list. You've got the Pope, you've got the angels, you've got the apostles, you've got the prophet. In other words, he's saying, I represent the side of justice and right. Uh, argument back and forth to cut through all the legalese because most of your listeners won't be lawyers. What Butterfield pointed out to the judge and what the judge eventually decided, uh, first of all, the judge decided he did have jurisdiction because it, in his opinion it was a federal case. See, at least he was entitled to take jurisdiction. Because it's across two states. Uh, because it involves extradition, and extradition is covered by the Constitution. Right, right, yep. Uh, Butterfield tried to, actually did introduce affidavits showing that Joseph had never left the state and therefore could not have been a fugitive from justice. But Pope said, you know, that would be going beyond the four corners of this indictment and, uh, and arrest warrant. And since we're here on habeas corpus, I really can't consider that kind of material. What I can consider, however, is what does support the requisition request from Missouri. And what supports it is the affidavit of Boggs. And Boggs says that it's his information and belief that Joseph is an accessory before the fact of his murder. Now, if Boggs has concrete information, he should have stated what it was. We can't rely on his belief here. We need evidence, and no evidence was stated. Furthermore, when he says that Joseph was an accessory before the fact, he's stating a legal conclusion. And we're not here to consider legal conclusions from a non-lawyer like Boggs. That's my province. And I don't find that there's any cause to send Joseph back, and therefore he can go free. Mm. And uh, so that... uh, that was a wonderful victory again for Joseph Smith, and it was done completely in accordance with the law right there in the capital city of Illinois. Hmm. So another party. Another party. Bigger fact, than $150 probably. In fact, Wilson Law, as they made their way back, wrote a, a song. has 15 verses, and I won't sing it all for you. <laughs> but it was kind of clever. It, it, it's called the Mormon Jubilee. <clears throat> And uh, what the heck, I'll give you the first verse. And are you sure the news is true? And are you sure he's free? Then let us join with one accord and have a jubilee. We'll have a jubilee, my friends. We'll have a jubilee. With heart and voice, we'll all rejoice in that our prophet's free. And the, the Jubilee went on to talk about their entire experience. It was like, like a little memorial of their experience in Nauvoo. It talked about Judge Pope, talked about Lamborn, talked about Butterfield. It talked about Boggs. And uh, they would sing this thing as they're marching along, you know, the, the long days, three days' journey. And every place they stayed at night, you know, people said, sing it for us again. And I, I just would like people to picture this retinue of maybe 20, 30, 40, I don't know how many were in the party by this time, uh, singing this thing as they, as they walked through in, in great spirits. And at one point, one of their wagons slipped off the road on a bridge and into a gully, 
and broke, and they had to repair it and paid some money to some local people. And they all kind of laughed and said, let's send the bill to Governor Boggs. <laughs> <laughs> so that was great. Uh, the opinion, though, again, there were those who thought that Joseph was kind of getting out on the technicality here. Not on the merits. Not on the merits. Uh, the the newspaper, one newspaper said... Well, habeas corpus itself is a technicality, right? It, it is. It, it goes to the efficacy of the... Of the uh, a warrant and warrant, an arrest, yeah. yeah. And that's what Judge Pope was saying. I'm not going to decide whether or not Joseph was guilty of that, or even whether or not he was in Missouri. But this isn't enough evidence. If you've got better evidence, Governor Boggs or anybody else, hit me with it, but this isn't it. And so the papers said... The decision of Judge Pope was uncommonly clear and lucid and gave universal satisfaction so far as I have heard any expression, any opinion expressed. So they were very complimentary of Judge Pope. And in fact, that opinion has been cited in other legal opinions for a hundred years after the fact. It's called the case of the Mormon prophet. Huh. Uh, but on the other hand, regarding Smith, uh, they say, Joe Smith, this is the Alton Telegraph, Joe Smith, for the time being, has escaped that punishment he so richly merits, but a righteous retribution will yet be visited upon him. No man whose hands are stained with the blood of a fellow mortal can successfully elude the punishment. The day of its visitation upon him may be far distant, but arrive it certainly will. Who wrote this? This is the Alton Telegraph. Is that a... Illinois? It's an Illinois paper. Wow. And, it, and these are the same papers that are publishing John C. Bennett. So, you know, they've got their political angle here, and they're clearly anti-Mormons. But in a way, it's kind of prophetic. It, you can see why I say that these cases begin to set the stage for what is to follow. And uh, But it sounds like the, the entire state of still, you know, the, the elite blue bloods of the state of Illinois had this moment of just rapture and joy with Joseph. Was there, was there like social communion between top Illinois leaders and, and, the, and Joseph and his entourage? Absolutely. So were they eating together? Were they, you know, was Joseph putting their children on his knee? And was it like this, this beautiful moment of uh, camaraderie or of social sort of uh, warmth? I would say it was more a meeting of political, well, what happens when, when President Bush meets with uh, Harry Reid? Uh, I mean, they're cordial, right? Right. Uh, but it's a political cordiality. And when Joseph was in Springfield, he met again with Stephen A. Douglas. The first thing he did when he arrived was have dinner with Governor Ford. Uh, the party that you spoke of, they had a big party the night before, at uh, the house of William Prentice, who was the court uh, clerk and apparently a very well-connected man in, in town who actually was remembered in their song as being jovial and very, very friendly to them the whole time. Uh, after the hearing was over, uh, Judge Pope invited Butterfield and Joseph back into his office and met with them for an hour and talked to them about the case after he delivered his opinion. And he asked Joseph to prophesy something, and he commented on how big, how Nauvoo had become so large. 
you know, and asked him to prophesy about how big it would become. And Joseph said, well, I won't do that. But when we went there, people told us that we couldn't make that a viable city at all. And now we have 15,000 people. And I won't prophesy how big we'll become, but Nauvoo will become a great city. Well